McDonald's se está transformando en el mundo anime de McDonald's y te trae la nueva savory chili McDonald's sauce. Los mejores sabores se unen en esta legendaria salsa para que tus 10-piece chicken wackduggets, papitas y Sprite se conviertan en un meal ultra poderoso. Desbloquea un manga con tu meal y disfruta de un corto de anime cada semana. Solo en McDonald's. Badabababa, go! En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? A city is a congestion of animals whose biological history is enclosed within boundaries. And yet, every conscious and rational act on the part of these creatures helps to shape the city's eventual character. It is both a natural object and a thing to be cultivated, individual and group, something lived and something dreamed. And so I think the city of the future is like that. We should look at our own poop as a resource. It's two trends that's affecting the entire planet. One is obviously the rapid increase in demographics, population growth, and the other one is the rapid urbanization. In order actually to live in cities, what we haven't seen or what we haven't been able to recognize is that the countryside needs to be structured and organized on a scale that we've never seen before. Welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that explores how we can change the world. This episode, are cities our path to a sustainable world? Claudia, that's one of the biggest questions about the global goals and the future of the planet. So I want to tell you about my quest. Oh, your quest, like Don Quixote, <laughs> el hombre de la mancha. Sí. <laughs> Instead of tilting at windmills, I decided to explore Global Goal 11, which, as you know, sustainable is sustainable cities. cities. But what is a sustainable city? How do we create them? That's what I wanted to understand. With so many of us moving to cities, is there really any difference between sustainable cities and a sustainable world? You know what, Claudia? You are very clever. You oh. should have a podcast. Oh. But we have this podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that's the question we're going to look at right after we thank the people who make this a sustainable podcast. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by Brevet Capital Management. Brevet believes that every investment should be 100% responsible. So when we look at an opportunity, our first questions are, is there a lasting solution to a problem? Right? And, and does it make a community smarter? Later in this episode, you'll hear how Brevet Capital Management turned an abandoned sawmill into a clean power plant that recycled waste. Thank you to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music. Welcome back. I'm Claudia Romo-Edeman. And I am Edie Lush. Claudia, have you and your kids ever been to Disney World? Because that is where I want to start this episode. Mm, okay, even for you this is weird. I thought we were talking about sustainable cities, and now you're coming up with theme parks. <laughs> we are. But first, listen to this. We call it EPCOT. Spelled E-P-C-O-T. Experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Epcot 
will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Was that who I think it was, Edie? Yes, that was Walt Disney himself in 1966, describing his plans for the city of the future, the city of tomorrow. Walt Disney was one of those people who believed cities of the future were an exciting opportunity to create better living for all of us. And of course, there are others who warn that the city of the future would distill everything that is wrong with humanity, a dystopia. Like in Blade Runner. I love Blade Runner. Or (laughs) the sci-fi writer Kim Stanley Robinson's written about New York 2140, where the city is drowned by climate change, by the poles melting. I think, actually, Clara, your new apartment would be underwater. Oh, God. Well, I'm glad 2140 still weighs off. Right. But here is what is not far away. The UN says that by 2050, two-thirds of us will be living in cities. And that's new. It was only in 2007, by the UN's count, that more people lived in cities than in rural areas. And if you go back 150 or 200 years, almost no one lived in cities. Maybe one person in 10. So Walt Disney had it right? This is the challenge for everyone, everywhere. And it is different from eradicating poverty or giving everyone access to education or healthcare. Those global goals may be hard to achieve, but they are easy to understand. Which is why I asked an expert to explain what the goal of sustainable cities meant. This goal is focusing making cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. So there are a lot of targets to be met by 2030. And one of the key targets is really the idea, how do we ensure that would be universal access, because it's for all, for everybody, access to adequate, safe and affordable housing and basic services like access to education, access to health, access to water and sanitation. And an important component is the upgrading of slums by 2030. This is Hanata Rubian. I work with the UN Development Program as a policy advisor on sustainable inclusive growth, based in New York City. It's true that each of the goals Hanata mentioned in explaining a sustainable city is also one of the 17 individual global goals. But she told me that focusing on achieving this in cities is vital because cities are becoming so important so quickly. It's two trends that's affecting the entire planet. One is the rapid increase in demographics, population growth, and the other one is the rapid urbanization. So with rapid urbanization, what we see is cities growing and expanding much more rapidly than has been in past years. And with this rapid expansion, the tendency that these informal settlements or slum areas grow are much higher. And we see that in a lot of places in the world, like Nigeria and Lagos, in Bangladesh, in Dhaka, So improving those conditions, it's very important to focus. I think that's really interesting what you just mentioned there. It's the speed of urbanization rather than the size or the density of a city. That's correct. So there are two things. One is obviously this rapid speed of urbanization and the inability of 
local governments and societies to keep up and to be able to respond to those needs, to those challenges and the demand. And the second thing is actually the creation of new cities. Because when we look at the evidence and data, what we see is that smaller cities will grow much faster. In reality, we see the large cities will perhaps stabilize at some point. We see the trends that, for instance, Tokyo may actually reduce its size. So it's not a uniform process everywhere because cities are a place where people go because of prospects of living, right? So incentives. But we do see a tendency of new cities also to emerge in many places in the world. So these new cities and how they will evolve will be something very important to observe, to guide, to provide the adequate information, knowledge, experience that have been tried elsewhere and that's adequate to that context. Many people come to cities to escape rural poverty. You might remember eating my friend from UNICEF, David Anthony, yes. who did this report about 2030 Africa would look like the youth of the world, where we are going to have in one continent one billion new people because people moving to cities and creating not only first cities, but second cities and then third cities. And that's where you start looking at the concentration of people. And the question there is when you're going to have a lot of young people in one continent like Africa concentrate in cities, you will have to start thinking about design and the cities in a very different way and also start looking at the consequences for those rural areas about agriculture and who's going to be producing the food that those cities are going to be consuming. So we need to design cities so that they can take in all of those people while making their lives better. We have to think about cities organically. We need to design them. Like an architect designing a building so that everything fits together and everything is used and reused. Some people call this a circular city or a smart city. Architect William McDonough calls this cradle-to-cradle design thinking. Well, if we look at the point of a city, it is, in some respects, focused on the idea of citizens because it's meeting the needs, wants, and loves of the people who live there. So it's a place for people. And if we start with that and then work our way out, we discover using cradle-cradle thinking, for example, which would be eliminating the concept of waste as one tenant, using renewable energy as a powering system, having clean water and places for dignified, creative lives. That's the criteria for Cradle to Cradle. You realize that a city built on that premise becomes quite delightful. I wouldn't call it a smart city. I'd call it a wise city. And how does Cradle to Cradle fit into what you mean there about a wise city? With Cradle to Cradle, we look at the world and say there's biological systems that are powered by the sun and by income from the atmosphere, carbon. And so I think the city of the future is like that. We should look at our own, you know, poop as a resource. That's where the phosphate is. That's where there's carbon. There's all these various nutrients, which we require for nutrition. And we can actually return those to the soil instead of having to go to Morocco for phosphate, for example. That's where all of a sudden you see the city becoming connected to the world of nature at every scale and at every distance. 
So you've spoken about cities being less bad and doing more good. Talk me through what the difference is. Humans have been using double negatives for a while now to say something positive. The problem is that if you say I'm being less bad, so I'm making my city more efficient in carbon or water or something, but if you have the wrong system where you're polluting the water and you say, I'm gonna pollute it less, so pat me on the back and call me good. You can't because less is a numerical relationship. Good and bad are human values. So the real question becomes, how can I be more good? See, that way you look at it and go, oh, I really want to turn my sewage into fertilizer that's safe. Oh, well then, as you're designing the city, you wouldn't combine effluent from textile mills and factories that may be getting polluted to make sure it doesn't release poison water. But on the other side, you want to make sure your water is clean enough to drink. So we like to look for more good at the same time as we look at less bad. So definitely be less bad. Certainly in energy efficiency is less bad. But we might even find ourselves saying, wouldn't it be wonderful to use hydrogen for thermal requirements instead of carbon-based fuels? At this point in history, we know that CO2 in the atmosphere is a toxin. It's a wrong material, wrong place, wrong dose, wrong duration. There's nothing wrong with carbon or carbon dioxide. We make it every day. We make it every minute. But, but human produced carbon in excess of natural systems ability to work with it in the atmosphere is a toxin. But the fun part is to make your buildings renewably powered. That's what we try to do. So we have buildings that produce more electricity from sun during the year than they require. So you give it to the neighbors. These are energy positive buildings. So then the world's getting better because we're behaving like trees. When you've written about cities and spoken about them, you talk about replicating the operating system of the natural world. So you mentioned trees there. Can you talk me through the principles of, of how you look at this operating system of the natural world? The natural world has exquisite complexity and interdependencies and diversity. So if we think about a city as an organism, in fact, there's a great quote that I always was delighted by, by Claude Levi-Strauss. A city is a congestion of animals whose biological history is enclosed within boundaries. And yet, every conscious and rational act on the part of these creatures helps to shape the city's eventual character. By its form, as by the manner of its birth, the city has elements at once of biological procreation, organic evolution, and aesthetic creation. It is both a natural object and a thing to be cultivated, individual and group, something lived and something dreamed. So if you have a, a dynamic system, that's what nature does. And it's really the more the merrier. So everything is adding to the benefit of the system. The waste of our system becomes the food of the next one. But it has to be optimized to be fabulous. And that means we start designing the products to become the next round of products. Design is a big word here. You have to be intentional 
create city systems that act like nature. We design all our office buildings to be convertible into housing at a drop of a hat. So if the markets change or this building wants to go on for another hundred years, it can be converted to housing just like that. Those buildings are designed for reuse. And so that's the circular economy. We can want to keep them. So that's really the cradle-to-cradle message. Design them safe and healthy for humans and ecosystems first. Because the first job of business is do not kill your customers. You know, and right. then, and then <laughs> second is you know design it for a circular economy and material reutilization. And then third is power with renewable energy. Fourth is make sure you have clean water, clean enough to drink. And fifth, make sure people have delightful creative lives that are respected in the process. Social fairness. On the energy front, there will be no one answer. Just do that. There may be one answer here and one answer there. There may be a combination of answers, this for daytime, this for nighttime. So you don't just say, I have one solution, which is burn carbon 24-7. The rule of the first industrial revolution, once hydrocarbons were deployed, was essentially if brute force doesn't work, you're not using enough of it. Whereas today, we can be much more elegant. And so buildings can be designed to heat and cool themselves in local conditions using ancient techniques as a baseline. It's really fundamental wisdom. And then you can add these high-tech wonders to tune them up any way you want to. But there's no reason we have to have that while we destroy the world. And so that leads to diversity. Like when we put the world's largest green roof on Ford Motor Company factory, you could say it was for the birds. And, and, and that would be true. But it also saved Ford $35 million in capital expense because we were using natural systems to purify water on the sites instead of large chemical plants and big pipes. That's the equivalent of the 4% profit on an order for $900 million worth of cars. When we come back, we will talk to an urban designer who says we cannot just think about cities. We need to reconsider the countryside, too. But first, this. Hi, I'm Doug Monticello, the CEO and co-founder of Brevet Capital Management. We provide financial solutions that brings investors and businesses together to address the needs of governments. Brevet believes that every investment should be 100% responsible. So when we look at an opportunity, our first questions are, Is there a lasting solution to a problem? Right? And, and does it make a community smarter? So every smart community has one thing, at least in common from what we can tell, and that is it has abundant and sustainable jobs. It's fascinating to listen to Bill McDonough talk about creating smarter cities through circular principles, because as investors, you know, it's kind of what we do. Let me give you an example. We have a waste or energy project. You know, we invested in a business that took an abandoned sawmill. It was a town where everybody had been laid off and the community was a bit depressed. And so we took the sawmill and we turned it into a power plant. That power slash energy plant that took unrecyclable waste and turned it into power also took that power and turned it into heat. And it took that heat and turned it into cement. And that's important 
because that cement actually took all the waste from the energy production and made it into better cement while doing it all in a very clean and CO2 efficient way. So that's a business that creates jobs with stability, gives dignity to its employees, and creates a future for the community. And it doesn't rely on anything really complicated. This is not a fancy financial transaction, no. This is just simply a really good, highly replicable business model. So we believe in creating smarter cities and the jobs that fuel them is a responsible way to invest. At Brevet, we're combining tools. How do you take a sawmill, turn it into a power production plant? And education, how do you run that plant in the way you used to kind of think about the sawmill? And use our capital as a catalyst to create the solutions that are sustainable. Welcome back, Edie. You rushed into the studio fresh from a recording. Yes, I just got off the phone from a recording with Samir Bantal, who runs a think tank within leading urban designer Rem Coolhouse's OMA. So he has some fairly radical ideas, and they are all expressed in a new Guggenheim exhibit about the countryside. So AMO is one of the leading urban design companies. But when you walk through countryside, it feels like you're waving a big red flag and saying, hang on, we have to think through this urbanization thing again. Is that the message? Cities only represent 2% of the Earth's surface, which means that the other 98% perhaps is ignored. So there's much more attention. There's almost a kind of single focus on urbanism and on cities, while actually the countryside is perhaps the most interesting area to investigate right now, not only as architects, but, you know, as humanity as a total for different reasons. And that's what we try to show and what we try to explain in the exhibition. When you walk in to countryside, there's a sign that most of the world's people will live in 2% of the world's land, and, and you describe it as absurd And I wonder why you use that word absurd. If we look at the way our culture looks at our world, it often starts from a kind of urban perspective. And so you could say that in a way, this 2% of the Earth's surface dictates almost the role of the 98%. And of course, like it's a, it's a very charged statement to make. But what we say is that in order actually to live in cities... What we haven't seen or what we haven't been able to recognize is that the countryside needs to be structured and organized on a scale that we've never seen before. So I wonder, since cities are growing at an unsustainable rate, what are the changes needed in the way we think about living in an urban environment? There is a price to pay for our life in the city. And that price is often paid by the countryside. So whether it's farming on a large scale, whether it's food production, whether it's our energy harvesting, all of that happens mostly in the countryside in large areas for which we basically give up sometimes nature just to sustain our way of life in the city. And the effects of that, because it's so remote, are not felt directly by people. And... 
One of the things, for example, that we found was that in Reno, Nevada, the kind of digital life that we have, and whether that's on Facebook or through Google or, or whatever, actually also has a physical representation. And this physical representation is large warehouse type of buildings scattered around in beautifully pristine landscape where still wild mustangs are running around and grazing. But that is actually a physical representation of the internet. We called it the back office of the internet. We started to investigate what does this mean? Is there a way in this, how this has been incorporated into the landscape? Because it seems a kind of urban planning without an urban planner involved. It seems as if it's an architecture without architects involved. And it seems beautifully almost like designed interiors without an interior designer involved. So is this, first of all, a kind of realm that we as architects need to be aware of and should explore? But is it also a way for us to understand what the consequences are of our lives in the city? One change also would be to reconsider the countryside also as an area for progress and modernization and forward thinking rather than that this is solely the the role of the city and so i think if we're able to tell that story and to recalibrate almost the image of what the countryside is then we might be able to have another option or another idea of how to plan and how to design our communities and therefore our planet. So I wonder what you've learned from your research that might offer some fresh thinking on the city of the future. One of the things is the role of planning. And I think this is also what we're showing in our exhibition. In the 20th century, and either through democratic or non-democratic regimes, have always had a sense of let's say, importance of the countryside. I think Europe is struggling with a kind of emptying hinterland. The countryside is emptying, it's decreasing in terms of population, and often we still see that planning is focused on making cities more viable, more diverse, and more etc., etc. China, on the other hand, has a kind of strategy into identifying, let's say, five typologies of rural life, five typologies of villages, and tries to find a way in how these five typologies that are still to be found in the Chinese countryside have a kind of sustainable future. One example is that some villages are almost remodeled to become like open-air fulfillment centers. So production is centralized, and this is production, not only farming, but also like furniture, for example. And through a kind of training of farmers and local producers in remote areas by companies like Alibaba, people in remote areas are now connected to internet and e-commerce and are able to sell their products, even though they are very remote, to people who live in the city. So this is a way that China, for example, tries to accommodate something like e-commerce or something like economical, viable future on an area that, for example, in Europe has almost been given up. 
So finally, there's a quote in the promotion for the exhibition that we really liked. It says, the countryside is now the site where the most radical, modern components of our civilization are taking place. So I wonder what we learned from that as our cities face these challenges. Uh, we've now reached a moment where the story of the city is, is mainly about comfort, security, and safety. And so that anything that we do has to accommodate this. The smart city, which is a very interesting kind of connection between the market economy or the market thinking and uh, new Silicon Valley technology, actually is not pushing any boundaries further. It's again trying to fulfill the idea of safety and comfort. As a result, cities are not very much progressing or developing. I mean, the, the model of a city is now becoming a formula that is copied and repeated globally. So cities start to look like each other, they start to behave like each other, because they all work according to that formula. So to what extent is there still space for radical ideas or new forms of living, new forms of working, new forms of energy production. What we're seeing is that actually these issues are taking place in the countryside and are taking place in a much faster and, and a much more radical spirit. And is there a future foreseeable where the city can actually learn from this more agile form of thinking? Samir Bantal and Rem Koolhouse are presenting Countryside at the Guggenheim Museum in New York through August. Claudia, I want you to go see that exhibit. 1,000%. Underneath everything is the question we began with, our vision of the future. I asked Bill McDonough for his vision. And when you imagine the city of the future, what is it? Do you have a, a utopian, a dystopian vision or, or something else? Designers are inherently optimistic by disposition because we wake up in the morning intending to make the world better. So I guess utopian more than dystopian in terms of intention. But there's also this kind of thing that is now referred to as sunny pessimism, best described, I think, by F. Scott Fitzgerald in an article in Esquire, I think 1953, where he said, a sure sign of a high intelligence is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in one's mind at the same time and not cease to function. <laughs> so in a way, it's like you can see that the entire situation is hopeless, but we still strive to make it not so. Well, I think that that was amazing. For me, Edie, in the 25 years working in global organizations, it was the cities that had the power at the very, very end. Hmm. Tell me about that. For example, working for the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, we had an agreement with certain government and they agreed on imposing certain policies and certain actions towards prevention of AIDS. The president can just go ahead and say, this is what we're going to do. But it is a mayor of a city that has the decision-making power about like his own funding and his own money. Hmm. So you might have a 
federal discussion and a national discussion, but unless the mayor is on board, unless the city wants to do that, a priority is not going to happen. The issue, of course, is that while they have a lot of power, they never have the amount of budget because they don't generate taxes on their own. At the end of the day, Edie, in order to advance the global goals, we need to think of cities as key players that will take the decision and move that forward. And I think what's so important is that rapid urbanization that we have spoken about. Depending on how you define urban, that's about 4 billion people living in cities, 3.5 billion living in rural areas. But... Demographers say that virtually all the population growth in the years ahead will be in cities. So by 2050, there will be 7 billion people living in cities and still about 3.5 billion living in rural areas. Wow, that's so massive. And we, we, I don't think that we have started actually grappling with the issue, right? Part of it is slums, right? A third of all city dwellers live in slums, favelas, makeshift homes. In some places like India, it is getting better, but in other places, conditions are still deteriorating. Mm -hmm. And that's where design matters. And I've seen a number of people using their architectural knowledge and thinking to try to meet with the SDGs 11 and try to see how do you actually develop a place that can provide a dignified living at the same time making it echo and have less usage of energy and so on. I think that this is an exciting moment and we should follow it more carefully. What you're saying there about designing, that's part of planning. And that's the message all the way from Walt Disney at the start through to Samir is that we can plan for it. We can think this through. Cities are what we make them. Facts and action, CD. Facts and action time. This Woo. is the time in every one of our episodes we give you the three facts that you can show off with your mother-in-law at dinner and we give you the action so that you can actually implement something good. So in this episode, Stan Stalnacker, a friend, a very dear friend and partner of the Global Goalscast and the founder of Hope Culture. Hi, I'm Stan Stalnacker from Hub Culture. Thanks for having me today. I'm here with three facts and three actions related to SDG 11, Sustainable Cities. Fact one, according to UN Environment, today over 700 million people live in an urban slum, which is almost one in three city dwellers. But economic dynamism is possible in these areas. I just returned from Rio de Janeiro, where Vidigal, a famous favela, is transforming into a hotspot for Airbnb rentals. The digital economy is beginning to reach these areas. Fact two, rapid urbanization is a new experience for humanity. In 1900, only about 16% of the world lived in cities. Today, it is 55% and headed higher with over 4.13 billion people living in urban environments today. Fact three, virtualization is an economic powerhouse for sustainable economic development in urban areas. By 2025, the global market for virtual goods is expected to reach 189.7 billion US dollars, which means that workers will be able to earn incomes in new ways through virtualization without consuming physical resources in the same way. This shift points toward economic enrichment through digitization, regardless of your physical location. And there are also three actions you can do. Number one, make your community carbon positive. We need wise cities to be carbon positive. 
The only way to reach the 1.5 degree imperative to avoid the worst effects of climate change is to make sure new developments in cities are not just carbon neutral, but carbon positive. This means they should generate more energy than they consume through renewable sources like solar, and in so doing become an energy contributor instead of an energy consumer. This is now possible if we build new buildings with consideration and seek to renovate and improve existing structures that are already existing. Number two, connect and deploy digital identity. For urban city dwellers, access to a digital identity owned by the individual is a crucial 21st century human right. With it, as an urban citizen, you'll be able to access more goods, services, and opportunities through the virtual world. You can obtain a digital identity and become a digital citizen through HubID, our service, or research other global initiatives for global citizenship programs, including the Global Citizen Forum, Estonia's Digital Citizen Project, and even blockchain-related initiatives like Colony or BitNation. There are many options emerging for virtual digital citizenship. And finally, number three, if you want to be part of building a future city and support restoration of the Amazon rainforest, you can. Hub Culture is busy working on Hub Culture Emerald City. It's a new virtual city that is currently being built online, but it's also funding the protection of real-world Amazon rainforest as part of its mission. You can become an Emerald City citizen and learn more about this exciting new mission at hubculture.city. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you very much, Stan, for those facts and actions. Before we go, we want to share more on our partner, Universal Production Music, and their initiative to introduce more diversity into the production music world. They teamed up with She Said So, an international and diverse network of women who work in the music industry, along with the support of She Is The Music, a nonprofit organization that endeavors to increase the number of women working in music to find female-identifying composers and artists around the world to feature on the release of 100% Her album, which is now live on the Universal Production Music website and Spotify. Out of 470 submissions, 10 winners were selected across the globe from France to Turkey, Australia to Sweden. 100% Her is a serene soundscape of smooth synths vivacious vocal loops and textures, soulful strings, and with just the right balance of bouncy and brooding bass lines. Wow. All 10 tracks were composed, mixed, and mastered by women, a huge feat for music as this seldom occurs within the industry. We're going to hand over now to Anya Tennyson talking with Kate Lloyd, who's one of the winners, and discover her story and what it means to be part of the 100% Her album. Today, I'm here with Kate Lloyd, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about herself and how she got into music. I am a composer and producer, and I write various electronic music, some cinematic and orchestral as well. And I got into music from a young age, really. Started learning to play the piano from quite a young age, and then just started writing songs on my own. So off I went to Leeds College of Music and I did my BTEC in music technology there. And then from then on, I went to do my BA in music production. So I started learning the craft of sound engineering and producing and mixing. What kind of music style and genre do you prefer to create? I think I probably prefer the electronic genre and specifically more down-tempo. So I'd always followed artists when I was growing up, like Moby and Roiksop, 
massive attack and that was the sort of thing that inspired my sound now I suppose so if I had to choose that's probably what I always default to writing. How did you find out about the 100% Her campaign? Not long before Christmas I think it was around September time the alumni coordinator at Leeds College of Music they were in touch with me and they'd asked to write an article about my career and what I'd been up to and he mentioned this campaign that Universal were doing and he said, "Okay, oh, I don't know if you've seen this, but I thought of you immediately because they're looking for specifically female electronic composers and producers. And I clicked the link and I just thought, oh, my God, it just felt like a bit of a sign. So I clicked through and I read about the brief and what you guys were after. And I just thought, absolutely, that's something I really want to go for. So, yeah, that's for Dav at Leeds College of Music. Thank you so much for sending me that link. You're a legend. <laughs> Tell me, how did it feel when you found out that you were one of the final 10 selected to be on the 100% Her album? Oh, I was buzzing, like so made up. It was just the best news. When I first got the email that I'd been shortlisted, I mean, my heart was already racing at that point and I was like, oh my God, this actually might happen. And then when I finally was told that I'd made it onto the album, I just felt so proud. It's just such an achievement. Everything behind the campaign is something which I really support anyway, being a female in the music industry, especially being a producer, composer. And to be picked out and recognised as that, it was just a true celebration. So I feel extremely grateful to be part of the album. Did you know much about production music before? And have you ever worked on any production music previously? Yeah, so I started getting into writing production music around a year and a half, two years ago. And It felt like a good idea to diverge what I was doing separate to what I'm doing as an artist. So I started writing for small production libraries. I write various different music for them, mainly electronica stuff, but it's different to what I do as an artist. But yeah, so I really enjoy writing production music. It's good. It's a really good angle to get your music out there even further. So what would you say your next moves are going forward? I'd like to keep on writing more music for production libraries, absolutely, and get some more contracts with different companies, that would be really good. And then as an artist, I write under the name Cloyd, and I'd like to start gigging more and putting more stuff out there under that name as well, just see what happens. I was kind of hoping to write an album by the end of 2020, so watch this space. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. And here's a little preview of Kate's track, Solitude. The 100% Here album is now out on the Universal Production Music website and on Spotify. Okay, Yidi, thanks to all our guests and to you, our listeners. Please like and subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Global Goalscast. See you next time. Adios. Bye. 
Global Goals Cast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Kubreiter, and our interns, Brittany Segura and Taryn Rennie. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music, one of the world's leading production music companies creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. This episode is brought to you by Brevet Capital Management, providing financial solutions that bring investors and businesses together to address the needs of governments. Thanks also to CBS News Digital. ¿Estás listo para convertir tus mejores ideas en un negocio en línea exitoso? Te presentamos Shopify. Tal vez no lo sabías, pero nuestro podcast More Than Mummies es un negocio y lo empezamos, por supuesto, para desahogarnos y hablar sobre la maternidad, no para convertirnos en expertas de ventas y del e-commerce. Así que sí, necesitábamos ayuda para vender nuestro merch y poner en marcha nuestra tienda. ¿Y cómo suena con Shopify? Llegó otra venta. Shopify es la plataforma de comercio que está revolucionando millones de negocios en todo el mundo. Ya seas un emprendedor desde tu casa o desde donde sea, Shopify es la única herramienta que necesitas para iniciar, administrar y hacer crecer tu negocio sin dificultades. Con Shopify puedo gestionar pedidos, envíos y pagos desde cualquier lugar, brindándote toda la información y estadísticas de tus ventas al detalle. Regístrate para un periodo de prueba con tan solo un dólar al mes en shopify.com barra sonoro, todo en minutos. Ve a Shopify.com barra sonoro para llevar tu negocio al siguiente nivel. Shopify.com barra sonoro. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.